Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. and welcome to our webinar, When the Kids Come Home, Surviving COVID-19 with a Houseful of Children. My name is Katie Gorka. I'm the Director for Civil Society and the American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation. Angela Saylor, the Vice President of the Foundation's Fulner Institute, asked me to express her gratitude to both our speakers and our audience members for taking part in this event. We are especially grateful to Moms for America for co-hosting this event with us. So I'm just going to introduce our speakers and then turn it over to them. They will speak for about 20 minutes in total, and then we should have another 20, 25 minutes available for questions. Um, you're all muted, so you don't have to worry about that. And I'll remind you of this again before we start the questions. Um, but if you want to start asking questions while the conversations or the presentations are going on, you should see a button on your screen that says question, that's a question mark, or it says question. You want to use that. You do not want to use the one that says chat, and don't use the one that says raise your hand, because those are not functional. Use the one that says question, and we, be, we will be able to see those. And then we will put those up to the um, speakers when the time comes. So with that, let me introduce our three speakers. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Amy Anderson. She is co-founder of Global Nurse Consultants Alliance and assistant professor in the School of Nursing and the School of Medicine at Texas Christian University. After Dr. Anderson, we will hear from Dr. James Carafano. He's the Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And lastly, we'll hear from Dr. Lindsay Burke. She is the Director for Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. So thank you all to my speakers for being here. And I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Anderson. Hi, thank you. So today, as a medical expert, health expert, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things that you can do with, for your families to help protect yourself during this crisis time. Um, I, as a health expert, a mom and a, a mother, or mother and a wife, I get a lot of questions from my friends, family, and neighbors about what they can do. Why is this virus different than the seasonal flu? You know, what can my family do to stay safe? Um, things like what do I do if somebody gets sick in my house? So let's go over a few of those things. My biggest question though, is can we see the grandparents? So we're gonna save that one for the end and talk about it. So why is this different than the seasonal flu? Well, this is a virus, it's new, novel, something that our bodies haven't ever experienced before. So we don't know how individuals are gonna to react to it. 
it spreads much quicker than the seasonal flu and has been shown to be a little bit more deadly. So we have to be a little more careful about what we do out in our communities. Things that you can do at home are things like washing your hands. We've, we've heard from our public health officials that you need to wash your hands, stay home, don't congregate in groups. And those are really important right now for us to consider. And with kids, that can be a little bit harder. So I've, I've got four kids of my own and I have different questions from each of them. They're in all age categories about what they can and can't do. And the biggest thing right now is, is keeping your kids home. I see kids out in the community riding their bikes, getting congregating together, out playing volleyball. And it's really important because not only are they, you needing to protect them, but you're also needing to protect our friends in the community. They can be what's called a vector. So they can be the person that spreads even though they might not have symptoms. And people that up to 14 days can be asymptomatic or not have symptoms of this illness. So it's really important right now in order to contain the spread of the virus and ensure that our healthcare professionals have the supplies and things like ventilators, I'm sure you've heard about available. We need to help as a community by staying home and doing things that our professionals are, you know, asking us to do. So can you go out? Well, yeah, sure. If you need essentials like food or medications, you're going to have to go out. When you get home, my clinical area of expertise is the operating room. So I'm very big into infection control. And some of the things that I do when I get home and that they're recommending are ensuring that things are wiped down. So if you're bringing groceries inside and you're placing them on a counter, make sure you wipe that area up and clean it up with soap and water or things bleach, a bleach component, some disinfectant in order to ensure that we're not bringing the virus back into our house. I also take my shoes off at the door and after a big run out, I usually take a shower, change my clothes and sort of start over clean and fresh for the day. Your clothes and things can be washed in a laundry on a normal cycle. I would recommend doing them on a, the hottest cycle that the clothes can handle, but that's okay. Um, the other thing that you need to think about is who is coming to your door. So making sure that those people are staying back from you and your kids. Uh, the, and the next thing we'll talk about is, you know, what do you do if someone gets sick? And, you know, you might do everything possible that our public health officials are telling you to do. You're staying at home. You're only going out for essentials or medicine. And someone in your house might still get sick. And so don't blame yourself for this. This is we're doing our very best in this situation. Think, Don't panic. This is, yes, can be a serious condition, but most people are having mild to moderate symptoms, about 80%. So the first thing you wanna do is take that individual and isolate them, put them into their own bedroom. If you have access to the, an, a bathroom that can be exclusively for them, that's great, do that. And call your medical provider immediately to give so you can get specific instructions for that particular individual based upon their healthcare needs. And you know, thinking forward, what things are you able to touch? What can you do? You want to isolate that person and stay away from them as much as possible. And I know this can be difficult with little kids. So you're going to have to think about how you, you know, some strategies. And I would say get a plan now. Who's going to be the primary caregiver if it's one of the kids that is getting sick? So that you're the only contact person, whether your mom, dad, or whatever guardian, whoever that's going to be is going into that room. And that is just that individual that's caring for the child. So there's less transmission possibility between them and other family members. If the person can at all wear a mask, have them. If they can't, when you come in the room. If they can't, then you need to wear a mask. It's very important that any coughing or sneezing that we're capturing those little virus particles that are in the air so that it's not transmitted as much. 
So those are just some things, and I'm happy to answer other questions when we get to our, our question and answer session. But now the big one, can you be around parents and, and grandparents right now? And the, actual, the answer really is no. And that's really hard for me, and I know it's hard for a lot of Americans because we treasure our older people, our elderly, and we want to spend time with them. We can't do normal things right now with them. You can use digital technologies. I even saw where some people were, family members were driving by in cars and waving at the grandparents and telling them hello through car windows as long as they're social distanced away. Bring your own chair, sit on their driveway, make sure that they're staying eight feet away. If you have little children, make sure that they're not running up to those grandparents and that's gonna be hard. So you're gonna have to control that impulse for kids to run to those elderly people. And those are really important things. The next thing I can tell you is this is a really difficult time psychologically for your kids, whether they're teens or younger, because they're not doing normal activities and they cannot be social around their friends. So working on digital technology ways of getting them in touch and being socialized is important. And I would stress that you need to think about how you yourself are handling a situation, how your kids are handling the situation, and if you're seeing any signs of stress, anxiety, or depression, that you get into contact with your healthcare provider so they can help you work through some of those issues that you might be seeing. And I think we're up for James next. Great, thanks. Thank so, you so much. Well, first of all, let me thank you guys for who you are. It's a tremendous organization. Thank you for being part of this organization. Thank you for caring about your friends and community. Thank you for what you already do for all of us. So kudos. Um, I just want to talk for a few minutes about the big picture. What, what do you tell your children? What do you tell your friends and your family? Why do we have to do this? Why is this important? So I, I think it's always best to start with explaining is that why do we have to treat this flu differently? And there's two very important reasons. If even the, the if we just let it run through the entire population, if even the small percentage of the population that we estimate might get very, very ill, you are talking about millions of people who would wind up in hospitals and who would likely die. And for those millions who would wind up in hospitals and likely die, tens of millions of people might wind up in intensive care. That would crash the medical system of the United States, no matter what we did. And, and that would be a catastrophe far greater than 9-11 or far greater than any catastrophe we've ever faced. And so we can't let that happen. The other thing is, is as the doctor explained, we haven't ever experienced this virus before. To let a virus in which we essentially know there's no natural immunity in the population to run through 330 million people when we don't have the capacity to treat and care, identify and take care of people, that would be completely irresponsible. So America doesn't have a, a, a myopic choice between let's just all go back to work and ride this out, or let's just all sit in our homes forever and, and lock ourselves up. We, we can't pick either one of those options. And people who argue those extremes are literally arguing positions which aren't really, really credible. So the big question is, is okay, we get this. When do we go back to work? When do we go back to school? And there's three big variables that are gonna impact when we can start to recur something of a normal life. And there are the three things we should really, really watch for. Um, one is we have to stop the spread of the disease. That's important uh, because that's gonna keep the numbers in the hospital down. Keeping people out of the hospital right now is the most important thing. 
that's going to keep the disease from spreading. So you've probably heard the term bending the curve. You've probably seen these curves that they've shown in these in the evening briefings. That is primarily done through social distancing and all the tremendous things that the doctor just talked about in terms of good hygiene, um, good uh, good practices. That's what's going to stop the spread of the disease. That is is number one. Number two is we cannot let the medical system get overloaded. So in addition to keeping people out of the hospital, we have to ramp up, you've heard personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, rest, uh, ventilators, uh, all kinds of medical, to, to make sure that our hospitals can handle the people who are really sick. That is incredibly important, that we have that expanded capacity and that we can get it to the place that needs it. That's another thing that's gonna give us confidence that we can deal with this. Um, and the third one is also important. We need to develop and deploy and have really the, arson the arsenal to deal with the disease, the stuff that we have for everything else. And that includes everything from therapeutics, uh, like antivirals that might lessen the effects of getting the disease, prophylaxis treatments that you could take that might discourage the virus from wanting to come to you and go someplace else. Um, and ultimately uh, vaccines that would uh, keep people from getting the disease. It's gonna take time to develop and deploy those things, uh, many of which we are literally creating on the fly. And of course, the, the massive testing we need to really make sure we understand the disease and how it spreads. These are big, big variables. Um, if we all act like the yahoos that went to, to uh, spring break in Florida, it's gonna be a lot harder. If we all act like people that really care about our neighbors and our friends and our family, we will crush this thing. Um, American ingenuity is just now getting into this. You know, two weeks ago, it would take you days to get a test result. Today, an American ingenuity has produced a test that gives you results in five minutes, and it can be deployed to the person that's sick, not taking that person to the test. So th these are incredible advances that we weeks ago, months ago, we didn't even envision. We just have to watch for, for how this goes, and, and those are the big things. So the, the one thing I would add, the doctor said about, about stress, a lot of the stress is not knowing. Um, the opposite of that is knowing too much. We obsess about information. We listen to the news 24 hours a day. We track the numbers. They've already told us the numbers are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, we're going to have spikes in other places. We have to understand that. We, so don't overly obsess on the news. On the other hand, discipline yourself really to get good, credible information. I personally think the evening briefings from the administration are excellent sources of public information. They're very understandable. They're very accessible. I think it's worthwhile for a family to sit down and listen to them over the dinner table and then talk about what they just heard. I think that's the perfect way to stay informed. You can go to really informative places like the CDC website and really get real time, really good, solid information. You can go to the websites of your public health officials in your state and local government. Um, and you can go to places like Heritage. Heritage has a COVID response page where we list all the sources that we use to do analysts, the websites that we go to to get data. And of course, you have our research and analysis there as well. So if you, I think, discipline how you go after the information, and that's going to make you better informed. And then, and then watch the three questions. And I'll just end on this and turn it over to Lindsay, because she's going to talk about some of the exciting things we can do. Part of, part of dealing with this is being optimistic, knowing that there is a future, and doing what you can to make that future happen. We can all do something in this disaster. We can help break, bend the curve. Every American can do that. 
every American can play a part in making their neighbors and their family and their friends safer. This isn't World War II where only the guy with a gun can go off and fight. We are all on the front lines here. But not just in bending the curve, but the day after the curve, when America goes back to work, when we get our companies up and running, when we get our kids back in school, when we uh, create new businesses, when we learn from what we experienced and figure out ways to capitalize on that, we need to think about those now. We need to talk about it with our friends, talk about our families, and talk about what we are going to do to make America not just good again, but better than before. And, and the time to think about that is now. When the curve bends and we go back to work, we're going to need to do the, hit this really hard. Thanks, Katie. Great. Lindsay, so oh. I'll take it. Yep, I'll take it over from there and switch it up a little bit. Talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the education policy front, uh, where we stand right now with schools across the country, because this is really something that we have never experienced before in terms of the impact that we've seen on schools, both public and private, across the country in a very, very fast, very short amount of time. The coronavirus has had such an impact on education. Um, education Week, which is an industry newspaper, has been following the impact. And they report that 47 out of 50 states have closed schools entirely. That can be both public and private schools, and largely is both. And that in those remaining three states, most districts within those states have also closed schools. So we're talking about 124,000 public and private schools across the country and more than 55 million children across the country who are all schooling at home. We've been talking now about how we're all, all of a sudden, homeschoolers now. And that's definitely the case for families across the country. So I want to hit three top line issues today, provide some resources for families who find themselves suddenly as accidental homeschoolers, what this all means for families, and then talk a little bit about the policy response, because that is going to be really important for education broadly and families uh, over the next year. So just to start with some resources, Heritage has a really great new resource. It's called the Curriculum Resource Initiative. And you can just find it, you can Google it, you can Google Heritage and Curriculum Resource Initiative, and it'll pop right up. And on that Curriculum Resource Initiative, what we've done, and we have dozens upon dozens of resources there, is we have aggregated trusted resources that your family can use. And most of those are free resources, at least, uh, if not permanently free, free right now during the pandemic. And you will find science and art history lessons that have been curated by the Smithsonian Institute for younger children. We have math curricula for students in grades one through eight. We have lessons on space exploration and computer science, among many other resources for younger students. For older students, you'll also find dozens of lessons and resources on constitutional self-government. The Ashbrook Center has done a fantastic job creating those. We have lectures on history and political theory from Hillsdale College, uh, lessons in economics from Marginal Revolution. We have courses in logic and rhetoric from the University of Dallas and courses in history and government and economics from the Bill of Rights Institute, among dozens of other resources for high school age students. So definitely check it out. Again, it's the Curriculum Resource Initiative that Heritage has put out. 
So those are a few of the resources. That's really just scratching the surface. But what does this all mean for parents right now? Um, one immediate impact, in addition to every family across the country also becoming teachers uh, in the short run, this also means that parents have a real opportunity to be exposed to more of what their children are actually learning in their prior schools. This is a, uh, something that my colleague Jonathan Butcher at Heritage has pointed out, that it really gives families the opportunity to do a deep dive into what their children were learning prior to the pandemic. Um, Matt Beinenberg, who is an analyst at the Goldwater Institute, he explained earlier this year that even in some cases, state laws, when they do allow parents to review their children's curriculum, that often it's in a really restricted way that they can only do so if they're on school premises. Um, in some cases, and in school districts, there are limits to what material parents can see. So this really does provide us the opportunity to do a much uh, better overview of the content that our children are learning as schools are sending that content home. Um, so really take that opportunity to get closer to your child's school assignment. Um, I will note too, on the, the policy uh, side of this conversation, there is so much in flux right now in education policy, so much that schools are having to consider. And that could be public schools, private schools, charter schools, uh, schools of all types are really having to think about what the rest of the school year looks like for them and what that means for children moving forward this fall. So there's a lot to break down. Um, I would just start with some basic figures on where we were in terms of the types of educational options families were exercising prior to the pandemic. So just to give everybody a sense of uh, where things stand. So there are about 58 million or so uh, K-12 age students across the country. And a good number of those were attending uh, traditional public schools prior to the pandemic, about 50 million or so. Of the homeschooling population, so prior to the coronavirus hitting, we had about 1.6, closer to 1.7 million children across the country who were already homeschooling before the pandemic hit. And then we had about another 300,000 or so students who were already attending fully online virtual charter schools. And then we had a few thousand additional students using what are known as education savings accounts to basically craft an education for themselves at home using those resources. And so in all, we still had fewer than 2 million children across the country uh, basically schooling at home or doing virtual instruction, which is about 3.3% of the school age population. So I, I think that's important to just lay that marker down so we know moving forward how we've seen the, the pendulum move as a result of this pandemic. Because there are questions. Will we see massive increases in homeschooling long term? Will we see a major disruption of the traditional school model? Um, I think we're going to see something in the middle. I think more families are going to get comfortable homeschooling. There may be many families who say it's not the right fit for them, that they are ready to go back to their prior school arrangement, or that it's simply not the right fit for their child or their job. But I do think we will see some increase long-term in the number of families who feel comfortable homeschooling as a result of, of the pandemic. So um, I'll just end on this. What should states and the federal government, if anything, be doing right now to facilitate um, education with families who are homeschooling? 
on the state level, a couple of emergency policy reforms need to be under serious consideration. Um, we have argued that states should move toward providing emergency education savings accounts to families. Families across the country, without exception, are financing public schools that they currently cannot enter. And so for the remainder of the school year, families should get a prorated amount of money of what would have been spent on their child in that public school. So this isn't new money, but send those funds directly to families in the form of an education savings account that they can then use to pay for online tutors, uh, online learning options, virtual special education therapists, whatever they need to help them alongside of their homeschooling efforts. So emergency ESAs at the state level. States should also think about relaxing teacher certification requirements. So it may be the case that a state still wants to retain the requirement that a prospective teacher or tutor have a bachelor's degree in the subject that they teach, but they should relax the requirement, do away with the requirement that they also get state certification at the moment. That could help the supply of teachers and tutors who can teach online during this moment. Um, states should make sure that students are able to transfer easily to online uh, charter schools and online learning options. And then finally, in states that currently have school choice options in place, make sure there's an open enrollment um, opportunity for children to enter those school choice programs at any point in the year. And then finally, at the federal level, in terms of policy, we want to make sure that existing federal dollars that we're already spending are flexible and that families can use those dollars, again, that we're already spending on whatever education option they can do virtually during this time. So there's federal funding for children with special needs. There's federal funding through Title I for children in low-income school districts. Allow those dollars to follow families to online options of choice during this time. And then at the same uh, time, there's something called a 529 savings account. Many of you are probably familiar with this you may save in it to pay for your child's college uh, coursework. Now you can also use it at the K-12 level for private school tuition. Congress should, as an emergency reform, allow homeschoolers to also put their 529 savings toward homeschooling expenses right now as well. So those are some immediate policy reforms that would really help families as they are navigating uh, this new world of schooling at home for so many of them and making sure to the greatest extent possible that there is continuity in their child's educational experience. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Lindsay. All right. Just as a reminder, you want to use the question button on your screen, not chat, not raise your hand, and feel free to send us questions. Um, so I'm going to, oh, yeah, Dr. Carafano, <laughs> do you want to ask a question or not, Jim? Yeah. Just joking. You're just playing with us. Okay. Yeah. Here's the first question. What should I do as a mom if a member of my family is exhibiting symptoms, but my healthcare provider has said that tests are not available unless the situation is critical? Is there a place I can get a test through the CDC or elsewhere? I'm going to give that to Dr. Anderson. So the tests are locally available and decisions in the from the local authority will be determining whether you have access. You can certainly call your public health department and other healthcare providers around the area to see if any are available. 
The biggest thing about if you're exhibiting symptoms is really getting a hold of that provider so that they can do symptom control, figuring out how to treat what's going on with the person that's sick in your family. Um, and since most people are only dis you know, displaying these mild symptoms, they're gonna treat it more like a seasonal flu unless you get some more severe symptoms. So at this time, because we don't have a test for everyone in the country, there are gonna be some controls on who and who can't get them. And so your best bet is take the advice of your doctor, treat your family member, you know, the way that they're telling you to treat them. And then if you can access that at another time or from another source, certainly go ahead and do that. Great, thank you. Okay, Lindsay, I think this one is probably best for you. There is a movement in Texas to have the governor shut down schools for the remainder of this school year. Is this something a state government has the authority to do? And do you anticipate this can or will happen? Yeah, so they do. Those states, it's important to sort of, we can take a step back for a second to remember how education is structured in the United States. It is fundamentally a state local issue. It's a quintessentially state and local problem. And so the federal government's pretty far removed from education policy. So Texas isn't the first state that we've seen move in this direction. We've seen other states declare that school would be out for the remainder of the year as well. So they can certainly do that. I think we're going to see uh, it localized. It'll be different state to state. Every state's a little bit different in terms of um, the impact of the pandemic in those states, but it is certainly something that they can do. Hopefully at the same time, they are doing everything that they can to give families access to online learning options, to partner with great organizations like k12.com, for example, to partner with virtual charter schools, uh, not only in Texas, but in other states across the country to continue to provide parents with those resources. Can I just uh, expand on that just a bit? So it's not just about education. In most areas, state and local officials are the ones that have the legal authorities to decide on issues about what's an essential business, whether the schools would close or not, um, the, even who can have a medical test. The CCD gives out guidelines. It doesn't mandate what state and local governments do. So these are these are decisions, and which I think quite rightly rest with your state and local officials. The federal government has more authorities when it might come to say interstate activities. So if the president, for example, said, "I don't want airlines to fly between." Idaho and uh, Florida, we can actually do that because it's an interstate activity. And, and there are other things which fall in that category as well. But in terms of what goes on within a state and, and a city or county, it's the local officials that, that have the preponderance of responsibilities. And that's probably appropriate because they're the ones who are most accountable to you and the ones who should understand most of what's going on in communities and really what's best for the local people. The federal government's job is really to provide them the science, the data, the experts, the information, so they can make the most informed decisions and backstop them with resources and capabilities when they need them to implement them. Great, thank you. Here's the next question. The first couple of weeks, people were very concerned about their children's education, graduation, etc. While moms are still concerned about those things, we are feeling a big increase of moms wondering when this will end and whether our country will ever recover. The economic decline has become a very personal crisis. The money from the stimulus was supposed to go to medical infrastructure and supporting people who have to be out of work. 
We are seeing a lot of that money being used to promote socialist ideas, and that is a grave concern of many parents now that the president is talking about spending another $2 trillion. Just tossing that yeah. out there for comment. Right. So the first thing we have to realize is good economic policy is good public health policy. The public health policy that we use to stop the spread of the disease and keep our hospitals from getting overloaded, that has to be the priority right now. As soon as that's done, the priority is getting America back to work. Um, the, the people that are going to lead this country back is going to be the private sector. The best thing we can do for an employee is help get their employer back in the business so they can bring that employee back to work. Getting America back to work is really and ought to be job one. Um, I, I think that is the kind of thing which we can at the local level and, and, and feedback to our, our officials. And that's what that's what all Americans should want. And it really is the most important policies. Great. Will Heritage be providing a list of educational policy changes mentioned by Lindsay that we can present to our states? Yes, we can do that. And I was just thinking we should put that in one uh, nice little one pager that we could send around. So we will we'll do that and get that out. Great. Okay, so we can work with Moms for America to get that out um, to, to the audience. Um, next question. <clears throat> what about direct payments to parents for expenses related to schooling at home right now, such as a debit card that could be used for supplies or even meals for children on lunch assistance and possibly even compensation for parents who are now teachers. Yeah, so this is effectively what I was describing earlier. So right now there are five states that do this already. So pre-pandemic, five states that had education savings account options in place. So what that does is, so pre-pandemic, you decide that for whatever reason, the public school's not the right fit for your child. You can leave the public system. In Arizona, for example, if you do that, you leave the public system, you get 90% of what the state would have spent on your child in the public school. That money goes into a restricted use account that you as a parent, so again, this is 90% of the state per pupil public money that would have been spent on your child in the public school. At that point, it's about $6,000 a year. You can spend it on any education-related service, product, or provider. So private school tuition, online learning, special education services and therapies, whatever it might be that's a good fit. So right now, Arizona, Mississippi, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Florida have those ESA options in place. That's a really excellent framework for doing exactly what you just described, which was effectively paying parents the money that would have been spent on their child in the public system. You as a parent, you are already paying for your child's public school that you cannot currently access. So that money should go directly to families. In this situation, it, in Arizona, it goes in the form of a debit card that families can then use to pay private tutors virtually or online classes, whatever it might be directly. So that's a really good model right now that I think other states, particularly in this moment in time, should emulate to make sure there is that continuity for kids. Great, that's super interesting, thank you. Um, our next questioner says, I am in Broward County, Florida. There has been a mass exodus from our school district, which has already been plagued by numerous problems. I 
many parents will want to continue homeschooling with a choice of curriculum, not relying on the local school district. How would I address having that option available as an education spending account, as you mentioned? Yes, so Florida is one of those five states that already has an ESA program in place. Florida's ESA program, so you're probably familiar with it, it's called the Gardner Scholarship. It's currently only available to families who have children with special needs. So this is something that the state of Florida should immediately expand to make that available to all families. What's interesting in Florida, we did original research. We have um, original restricted use data that we leveraged to look at how families in Florida were spending their ESA dollars. And about 44% of families in Florida in that program were using their ESA and basically never entering a brick and mortar school at all. So they were hiring private tutors, they were buying textbooks and curricula, they were doing some online courses, but in other words, they were doing a completely a la carte educational experience for their child. And so they basically look like they're homeschooling. They're schooling from home, but they're using an education savings account to do that. Um, so I would hope that Florida would work to expand that option um, immediately, uh, you know, as soon as possible. And then certainly for the fall school year moving forward. And then once that option is expanded, if I were a parent uh, who was eligible, that's the way I would go to receive my ESA funding and then basically craft that a la carte customized educational experience for, for your child. And Lindsay, if I could just add on to that, can you provide any advice? Are there ways that parents or families can work together to advocate for those types of legislative changes? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's amazing. When Arizona became the first state to have an ESA in place, what I really, really loved about it was it was so, so family driven. Um, from day one, when that ESA program went in place, it was really moms in Arizona all got together and started a Yahoo message board and they started exchanging best practices about what providers were working well for their children in the ESA program. They would ask each other about things that were allowable expenditures or not. They would strategize about the actual policy itself and Katie, to your point, to try to expand that to more families and they were very successful at expanding the ESA program in Arizona. And so it really has been grassroots led. I think being able to leverage even something like a Yahoo message board to pull together mothers and fathers and families across the country to think about strategies for really reclaiming their child's education is absolutely the number one step to take. That's great, thanks, that's super helpful. Um, Dr. Anderson. Do I need to be worrying about groceries or other packages that I'm bringing into my house? So I would say yes to some degree. I mean, there's only so much that you're gonna be able to do about it. So the virus can live on surfaces for an estimate of maybe 72 hours. And so there, there's even some that say longer. So the, the best thing that you can do is go ahead and wipe down the bags that you're putting groceries in when you bring them in, wiping down the counters after you get your groceries put away. It's really hard for me to conceive of a way that you can wipe every single grocery item down to put away, but if you can, or if you have pre-existing medical conditions or you're at high risk, it would be a good idea. 
packages that come, I would I would request or say to you, go ahead and wipe them down on the outside, wipe the package on the inside. That's just for safety. We don't know for sure. If you don't do it, you may not ever get the virus, but it's just an extra measure that you might be able to take to help your family and protect them. Can I just have a word here about um, going to the grocery store and getting packages and that you will still be able to go to the grocery store and get packages. I mean, I think hoarding is, is something that's been unfortunate and honestly unhelpful. Um, we've already had the brunt of the crisis hit us. And the one thing that we have seen is the supply chains have held up pretty well. UPS, FedEx, the US Postal Service, they have been moving out and and uh, and grocery stores and, and mom, they're getting supplies. Um, I think where you've seen empty shelves is just because people go in and buy everything out when it gets there. If they just went to their normal shopping habits, the shelves would look more full. So I, I think you can have confidence in that. And I just would encourage people not to work. It really doesn't help. If anything, it's putting a lot more stress on truck drivers, uh, on the railroads, on the people who have to move this stuff because they're being required to do more and more and more. And we have the same amount of truck drivers that we had the day before the pandemic. So these people are moving, you know, 10 times as much toilet paper as they did a month ago. And they have to sleep and they have to eat and they have families and they have to take care of themselves and they have to look after their own wellness. It's a great strain on them. Uh, and so we help them out by being responsible consumers. And I'd like to just mention something else about that too, is if you're going out and doing activities out in the community, try to cluster them. So if you have to go to the pharmacy and you have to go to the grocery store, just go ahead and do them all at one time. That way you have uh, not as many transmission points. Um, oh, I guess along those same lines, um, someone's asking, is it a good idea to wear a mask and gloves in public when doing essential activities such as banking and grocery shopping? So at this point, the CDC is saying if you have them, it wouldn't hurt to go ahead and wear them. But I would say, please don't go out and try to buy a bunch of masks and gloves right now because they're really needed in, in the medical professions and in our essential workers, our essential workers need them as well. So if you already have them, that's fine. I would say it doesn't hurt to use them, it wouldn't hurt you. Um, but again, let's not tr let's try not to panic and hoard things that our medical professionals really need to do their jobs right now to keep them and their families and their friends safe as well and to be able to respond to you if you were to become sick. And, and Dr. Anderson, could you maybe just talk a second about the proper protocol? Because if people are gonna use gloves and masks to go outside and limit their exposure. If they're not using them and wearing them appropriately and correctly and treating them that way, making it more likely that they're going to get sick, not less. Could you maybe sure, talk? Of, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we talk about too in infection control is not touching your face. Touching your face is a huge transmission point for the virus. It's a way that it can get into your respiratory tract, into your mouth, into your nose, that type of thing, and make you sick. So if you're going to wear a mask, it needs to be up on your nose and across the back of your head and, and below on the back of your neck. Um, and make sure that that area, if you have a mask that's got a sort of a little metal piece that you can pinch is pinched down, that's a way to wear the mask if you have one of those types. I know that many, there are people out there sewing masks like crazy that are cloth masks. I don't know how effective they are. There are different studies that say they are a little bit effective and some that say they're not helpful. 
So, you know, it's just up to you whether you want to wear them. It does not hurt. It certainly will take some of the virus particles out of the air. Um, and gloves, the gloves, you got to think about just because you have gloves on, it, you have to take them off properly and throw them away and wash your hands afterwards, but also don't touch your face. It's the same thing as your hands. Right. And and don't touch the mask. The virus is clustering on the mask. If you touch the mask and then touch your face, it's just as bad. Or if you take that mask off and then put it on the counter, you're just putting the virus on the counter. So absolutely. Doc, there are places on YouTube, right, where people can go and they can, can see videos about how to have proper protocols for using masks and gloves, I think, right? There must be. Yeah, there are, and I'm sure any, you can find them, and there's additional information on the CDC website about what is appropriate and not, but hand washing, that 20 seconds of, at least 20 seconds of hand washing, you know, wash your hands like you think you're a surgeon is really, you know, important, getting all the surfaces of your hand in all parts, top, around your thumb, all of that is really essential in ensuring you're getting off potentially virus particles. And think about it, if you get your children to do that, Maybe they'll get excited and want to be a surgeon. <laughs> All right, we have, we have time for one last question. Do we really need another 30 days of isolation or do you think we may be able to shorten that time? Yeah, so I think the one thing that, I, that I've been most um, impressed with the, the uh, government response is, I, I think the administration's actually been ahead of a lot of people in terms of what measures to take, for example, cutting off international travel. And I do think that the government has made, the president has made a really serious effort to look at the data, look at the science, and look at what the experts are saying. And the big difference between now and a month ago is we have way more data about what this disease is doing, how it's spreading, what's happening. Even a few months ago, the data we had came from overseas. It wasn't our data. We, we, and, and the Chinese data, who even, who even knows today how accurate that is. So the knowledge, our knowledge based on this disease grows every single day. And what the federal government is doing in their guidance is every single day, updating the guidance based on what the science and the data and what the experts are saying. So if they're saying it, I, they're not making it up. And that's why I am actually a big fan of the, the evening briefings. I think today they said, um, uh, I was gonna call it Vice President Pence earlier this afternoon. I think they're gonna move the briefing to four o'clock today. But I, I think it is worth our time. And, and what they're saying is very interesting. We live in a very kind of partisan, angry world. We're all yelling at each other. But if you actually listen after these briefings are over, nobody, nobody's questioning the science of, of what, what they're saying. All the experts are acknowledging that the government is making policies based on, on real science. And Dr. Anderson deals with this every day in, in her life, so she could probably have a better appreciation for that than anyone. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that the 30 days is a must, as hard and painful as it is for families to stay home and not go out and do normal activities. The spread of this virus, because it's so quick, what we're trying to do is decrease that spread because if the virus can't transfer from you to someone else, then we limit the number of people that are getting sick. And you're already seeing in places, hotspot places like New York City, New Orleans, um, those and New Jersey, those places, they didn't get that suppressed fast enough. And so we're seeing the numbers double about every three days of individu individuals that are sick. And we're also seeing the death rates 
you know, double in that way as well. And so we want to suppress that the activity so that we can keep the virus isolated and and hopefully go ahead and, and tamp that out. Great. All right. Thank you so much to our speakers. And before you all sign off, if I could just ask one thing, we are going to be sending you a survey. Um, it really helps us a lot to know how we're doing. So I would encourage you to fill out the survey. And there's an opportunity at the end if you have any additional comments, but I wanted to say as well, if you have questions that weren't answered or if you want follow up with additional resources, you can put your comment or question in that box and we will respond to you. So with that, thank you, Lindsay, Jim, and Amy. Thank you so much for your time and thank you, Mom. Thank you, Katie.